0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm Trentus Magnus, and I'm the best there is at what I do. I welcome you to the deluxe second episode anniversary epic milestone retrospective extravaganza. So here we are. My second episode spectacular. You know, it's the rare podcast that makes it to a second episode. In fact, people ask me all the time if I thought I'd even make it to two episodes. This is going to sound a little arrogant, but I never doubted for a minute that I'd get to two episodes. I always knew I had enough material that I wanted to cover to go for at least three episodes. I've always believed my best episodes are still ahead of me. But as I look back on this show's long and extensive history, I have to say it would seem wrong to reach this kind of a milestone without some public thanks and acknowledgement. So, first of all... I'd like to thank Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the hosts of Two True Freaks, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com, for their encouraging rookies like me to give this podcasting thing a shot. Without their helpful advice and cheerful attitudes, I probably wouldn't have even attempted this. I'd also like to thank my parole officer, Richard Ballsnasty, for being so understanding about why I keep missing our appointments due to scheduling conflicts brought on by this show. That's about all the help I've gotten, though, so everyone else can go piss up a rope, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Hey, your attention, please!
0: This... is a piece of
1: art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why?! Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
0: stuff out of the way i've read a few comics since last time but i warn you some of you may not like what i have to say about this one howard the duck number one starts off in cleveland with howard deciding to commit suicide by jumping off a tower noticing that there is no door into the building howard decides instead to climb the tower after nearing the top he stops for a break at a window and meets beverly switzler who is being held prisoner there by pro rata after a big mix-up with ProRata's dog, out of thin air, the ProRata, soon-to-be chief accountant of the universe, appears. He says he needs a missing jeweled key for his cosmic calculator and dispatches Howard and Beverly through a dimensional portal in order to find it. All kinds of wacky hijinks ensue from there. Meanwhile, J. Jonah Jameson has sent Peter Parker to Cleveland to investigate reports of a mutant duck menace and to get pictures. Not because that makes any sense, you understand, but because a guest appearance from Spider-Man in the first issue is practically guaranteed to increase sales. So, Spider-Man and Howard team up to take the pro rata down, and the end ends happily. The second issue begins with Howard having a nightmare that he's stuck in a Buck Rogers type of world shooting aliens with Bev. After he wakes up, he asks her not to give him any more of of Arthur's fantasy stories uh, for him to read before bedtime. Meanwhile, Arthur is working as a security guard when he comes across a glowing, self-aware space turnip which merges with him and gives him super turnip powers. Later, Howard and Bev are almost involved in a bus crash but are saved by Turnip Man, the garden-fresh guardian of the good. After saving them, Turnip Man flies away with Bev so that they can make whoopee. They land in a park, and then Turnip Man badly tries to run game on Bev who isn't having any of it. Howard soon catches up with him, and before anybody can say, holy shit, you're a talking duck, Howard finds himself in a fight with a space turnip that has possessed Arthur. After dropping the turnip leaf down a smokestack, Howard rejoins Bev and Arthur, the latter of whom has learned his lesson about the pointlessness of heroism and valor when there's a boring-ass real world of inanity and mediocrity laying just outside the window, and the end ends happily. All right. I knew pretty much nothing about Howard the Duck before I sat down to read these comics. But I'd heard nothing good about them, or rather, nothing but good things about them, so I thought I'd give them a shot. Now, I don't think this counts for anything, but I saw the Howard the Duck movie when I was a kid. But I don't think that would be a very good representation of Howard the Duck. And on top of that, it's also been. shit, I guess close to 30 years since I've seen it, so I think it would be fair to say that these comics are my real introduction to Howard the Duck. So as far as the review is concerned, I really loved the art by Frank Brunner. Um, Howard is suitably cartoonish, while the rest of the world is relatively realistic, and obviously I think that's a stylistic intent on his part, but on top of that, Brunner also managed to sneak in a lot of jokes into the background of various uh, panels, so that was... I don't know. I just liked it. It's a nice touch. Brunner's also good with uh, facial expressions, which, at least in my opinion, is kind of a lost art these days. Um, on the other hand, there are times when a particular panel isn't really balanced properly. And I think the, the best example of that that I can think of is that on a few occasions, what you see is a character on the right side of the panel speaking before a character on the left side of the panel, which is kind of a no-no. Even so... A lot of artists, at least occasionally, get that wrong, so it's not a huge problem, but it did jump out at me a a few times. This just seemed like an an especially uh, egregious example of it. Uh, Brunner has a, a great eye for detail. Now, he doesn't fill the pages with the kind of small object detail that you might expect from a George Perez or Jeff Darrow or Phil Jimenez, but he still finds a nice balance in giving... A very detailed picture, even if you don't necessarily get every single blade of grass. I don't even know if Brunner is still around, but I'd like to think a guy this talented had a long and healthy career. I'm not familiar with Frank Brunner's work at all outside of these two issues, but I'm thinking I may actually want to check out some of the other stuff that he's done. Now, all of that is the good news, the bad news is that if I search for his other work, I can guarantee you it won't be Howard the Duck. Full disclosure. Originally, my plan for this show was to review issues number one through six of Howard the Duck, and then maybe tackle seven to 13, which I think is where the series ended, but tackle seven to 13 at some point in the future. But these two issues were about as much as I could stomach. My intention is to use this show, this podcast, as a means of talking about comics I love, but also talking about comics I've never read before. Obviously, one such was Howard the Duck. Now, I know that Steve Gerber in general, and his work on Howard the Duck in particular, have legions of fans, and yay, but this just was not to my liking at all. I felt like there was a ton of potential for humor with this character and this concept and none of it really went anywhere at all maybe i'm not the target audience for this book since my tastes tend to be more in line with superhero type stuff rather than all this existential shit but i just didn't get into this title at all and that actually kind of brings up an interesting point you know when i think back on it I'm actually kind of at a loss to think of anything by Steve Gerber that I've really enjoyed. He wrote... I think he wrote an episode of Batman the Animated Series, the name of which escapes me, but it was after they moved over to uh, Kids WB. He wrote an episode of uh, Batman the Animated Series that I thought sucked out loud. And I I think I can probably say that same exact thing about every single thing of his that I've ever read. The major exception to that is that Phantom Zone miniseries, but even there, I wasn't crazy about the art in that book, so even the Phantom Zone stuff pretty much leaves me cold. So, I guess to bring it all back to topic, I can think of ways to make this comic better, or at least better in my estimation, but that obviously isn't what Gerber intended it to be. Before even getting into all of this, I read the uh, the Wikipedia page about Steve Gerber, And my guess is that Jim Shooter fired him Because Shooter had a thing about wanting to publish Entertaining comic books And there's just no room for Howard the Duck in that equation So Gerber was let go with regrets That's about as much as I can figure So, now, don't take any of this personally If you enjoy this book or Gerber's work or whatever That's fine But just remember that I'm right and you're wrong Otherwise, have at it Yeah, 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 play it, come on,
2: play it loud, play it loud!
1: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant, intense, fire out, freak! Two! in the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy.
2: True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh,
1: shit! Oh. Six. It's a
2: super-prize package
1: worth
0: 9300 oh. nine. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got.
1: God
2: damn it! Ow! Go away, Biden. And now, <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet,
0: your hosts
2: Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, God goddamn what he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsed. Impulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So
1: you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you are so kind of freak. Now come on, come on. she likes me, eh? Hey? No way. Shut up, you freak! Surely it's you. I say shut up! It's a man of- to TrueFreaks.com
0: Okay. Originally this is where this episode was supposed to end, because as I said I was going to review a lot more issues of Howard the Duck than just these first two, and I didn't really count on the fact that this comic would just end up being so horrible I wouldn't be able to finish. Who could have guessed, right? And so what I've decided to do is actually put this episode together with another episode and I guess sort of make a super episode out of it. So that's, that's the idea here. And the reason for that is because this other episode, the one that you're about to hear was running a little bit short itself, nowhere near as short as the uh, Howard the Duck bit, but still, it was running a little bit short, and so I thought it might be helpful to put these two shows together and just uh, economize on it that way, so here we go. Hello, and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I am Trentus Magnus, the titular host of this show. Today, I'm going to defend the indefensible and justify the unjustifiable. In the past several years, Chris Nolan's Batman films have come to be regarded by a lot of fans as definitive. Now, if you love them, good, whatever, I'm happy for you, but they're not to my taste. On top of that, you're free to have your own opinion. I'm not trying to change your mind about anything. I do, however, want to speak up in defense of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Yes, both of them. The reason for that is because I really think they've gotten a bad rap over the years. And yeah, they do have problems, and some of those problems are indefensible. But for the most part, I think they're fun, enjoyable Batman movies. However, it's orthodox among fans, these days especially, to have a low opinion of Schumacher's Batman films, and I I just can't do that anymore. What I've discovered, though, is that if you're going to defend Schumacher, you need shitloads of credibility, so I'd like to establish mine. I was aware of Batman my whole life, but I wouldn't say I was really a fan of the character until Tim Burton's first Batman movie in 1989. Seeing that movie on June 23rd, 1989 was my real introduction to Batman at the age of 8 years old. Following that, I began watching the Adam West TV show, which I loved then and still love today. And around that same time, I was given a copy of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told as a birthday present, which provides a sample of Batman's then 50 year history in comics. What this taught me early in my Batman fandom was that Batman can be anything. Unlike a lot of other heroes, Batman has very few inviolable, unchangeable elements to his character. Spider-Man pretty much always has to be Spider-Man, and Superman pretty much always has to be Superman. But Batman can be anything to anyone at any time. I don't want to get bogged down too much in ancient history, but it's important for modern audiences to understand where the Batman movie franchise was in 1992. Tim Burton had done a lot to bring Batman to wider audiences than at any other time, except maybe during the TV show in the 60s. It's easy to forget now, But the 1989 Batman film had some amount of controversy to it just by existing. Most casual moviegoers had a very fixed idea of what Batman should be, and Tim Burton challenged all of that in 1989, and he was very successful at it. But he was less successful in 1992. Although Batman Returns was a box office success, which people tend to forget, it alienated some parents who regarded Batman as the gold standard for family entertainment for children and this was based entirely on the image of Adam West playing the role. Now, fearing a backlash, Warner Brothers hired Joel Schumacher to direct a third Batman and gave him the mandate of making it lighter and more kid-accessible than Batman Returns had been. Schumacher directed a Batman movie that had considerable resonance with Tim Burton's movies as well as the Adam West take on the character that audiences at the time still expected. For better or worse, in 1995, Batman still meant Adam West, to shitloads of people out there. Schumacher was forced to make several new casting decisions with the movie. I'm not going to belabor those, apart from mentioning that Val Kilmer replaced Michael Keaton as Batman, Chris O'Donnell was brought in to play Robin, Nicole Kidman played Dr. Chase Meridian, Bruce Wayne's love interest, Tommy Lee Jones played Two-Face, and Jim Carrey played the Riddler. Schumacher brought a more stylized and, dare I say, comic booky approach to the visuals of the film. Schumacher's significantly lighter Batman Forever was a box office success, but, more importantly, was a merchandising success in ways that Batman Returns was not. For those reasons, and wanting to capitalize on Batman Forever's success, Warner Brothers rushed a sequel, Batman and Robin, into production. This new film replaced Val Kilmer with George Clooney as Batman, and introduced Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy, and Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl. Batman and Robin as a film was even lighter and more merchandise oriented than Batman Forever had been and that has hurt the film both in the initial release as well as its legacy and that is what I want to discuss and again I'm not out to attack anybody else's opinions about this or anything if Tim Burton's movies are your favorite hey, more power to you if you prefer Chris Nolan that's fine too those movies have some good parts to them All I'm interested in doing is speaking up for Joel Schumacher's movies because I feel they've been treated pretty unfairly. To start with, a a fairly common gripe of both movies is the crazy amount of neon and lighting choices used in both, uh, both films. My answer to this is that it's simply stylistic preference. Schumacher obviously wanted his films to have their own visual identity, and they certainly do. There's no rational basis to praise or criticize this. It's an aspect of his art, and if it doesn't appeal to you... There's no logical way your mind can be changed. What I'll say, though, is that I find realism boring in many cases. Schumacher's films are loaded with heavily stylized production design, color palettes, and lighting schemes such that they look like nothing else in cinema. I appreciate the artistic choices he made, and I think they're appropriate for his movies. Another criticism is that Val Kilmer was wooden as Batman and Bruce Wayne. This is another issue where preference is a factor, somewhat, but I view his performance more as stoic. He's carrying a lot of responsibility and a lot of guilt on his shoulders. At the same time, he's clearly struggling with being Batman. He's helplessly stuck in a pattern of self-destruction. And Before he can overcome all that stuff, of course Bruce Wayne is going to be stiff, reserved, and awkward. He's covering up more than just his secret identity. He's covering a lot of pain and torment. His only outlet is Batman, and it's obviously killing him. Related to that, George Clooney is thought to be too light and jokey as Batman in Batman and Robin. Well, Batman and Robin is a sequel to Batman Forever. It's logical, at least to me, that Bruce would have a different philosophy about his dual identity once he makes the decision to be Batman, because he can, rather than as a, as a nihilistic, self-destructive crusade of vengeance and obsession. I would argue that, on that basis, that... Clooney is pitch-perfect casting to play that type of easy-going Batman. I'm going to go into more about the characterization and all that stuff in just a bit. I just wanted to get that that part settled up front. So, what about Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face? Well, I think Jones is maybe a little too zany as Two-Face, but first of all, if you met someone who looked and behaved the way Jones does as Two-Face in real life, you would be scared shitless. Second of all, Two-Face still subordinates all of his decisions to his coin. There are instances in the comics where Two-Face flips his coin until he achieves a desired result, just like he does in in Batman Forever. It's rare, but there's precedent for it. Plus, there's a clear sense of Two-Face's split personality with Tommy Lee Jones in the role. His clothes, his hideout, his behavior. Everything supports the idea of dual personalities of the character. What about Jim Carrey as the Riddler? To me, Carrey perfectly continues the tradition set up by Frank Gorshin of a maniacal, over-the-top Riddler. Again, I think most people would be scared if they ran into a lunatic like that in real life. Nothing about Carrey's performance seems off to me. One major problem a lot of people have with Batman and Robin is Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl. More specifically, they quibble about her character's name and it's unfortunate that her character is named Barbara Wilson. I think a lot of trouble could have been avoided if Schumacher had given her any other name. Even if he would called her Gertrude Wilson, people would be less likely to attempt to draw a straight line between Gertrude and Barbara Gordon. The fact is that Barbara Wilson in Batman and Robin is really a composite of two comic book characters, neither of which are Barbara Gordon. Instead, Barbara Wilson from Batman and Robin is a composite of Betty Kane, the Bat-Girl of the 1950s, and Daphne Pennyworth, Alfred's niece. If you're if you're familiar with either character from the comics, Barbara Wilson and Batman and Robin suddenly makes a lot more sense now, huh? All right, so so maybe they're not so bad, but what makes them so damn good? Well. First, let me say that the movies have certain indefensible aspects to them. I can't touch those. But when you move away from those things, what you find are movies that have a lot of unappreciated depth. First off, there's Bruce's character arc in Batman Forever. To expand on what I'd said earlier, it's only at the end of Batman Forever where Bruce chooses to continue fighting on his own terms that he's able to overcome his guilt. By the time credits roll for Batman Forever, Bruce has gained more than just a sidekick. He's chosen to continue being Batman, and this is a major thing for him. Batman had always been a curse for him. Penance. Bruce was racked with guilt over his parents' death. He became Batman on that basis. However, Kilmer's Bruce continues being Batman after the movie based on his individual choice. See, this is a Batman who is haunted by the deaths of the Joker, the Penguin, and others. There's blood on his hands, and he feels isolated in even the simplest of social settings. This Bruce Wayne is freshly eaten alive by guilt every single day. He resolves that by the end of Batman Forever, but it's still fascinating to see just how much all the blood, anger, violence, and guilt have affected him. When Bruce warns Dick about seeking vengeance, he knows whereof he speaks because he lives in darkness himself, and he doesn't want that for Dick. In Batman and Robin... Bruce is faced with losing Alfred. Alfred is dying, and it looks like he'll be gone soon. In fact, there's a heartbreaking scene where Bruce and Alfred talk about pain, loss, and death. Hey. I spend my
1: entire life trying to be. Everything I've done, everything I'm capable of doing, but I can't save you. There's no defeat in death,
2: Master Bruce. Victory comes in defending what we know is right while we still live. to
0: Bruce knows he's going to have to leave home soon and have a final showdown with Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane. He also knows that win, lose, or draw, the only father he's ever known won't live to see sunrise. He has to go out there and do what only he can, but it means sacrificing the last few hours he'll ever get to spend with Alfred. Bruce is faced not only with losing Alfred to death, but losing Dick to his enemies because Bruce himself has been too proud to truly accept him. They agreed to be partners in Batman Forever, but they never learned how to truly work as a team, which, believe it or not, Batman Forever itself shows. Batman and Robin, as a movie, pits them against enemies who exploit their divisions and frailties. If they're not unified, if they don't act as a family, they have no hope of winning. Guys, I'm sorry, but that's some heavy shit. I can't sit here and argue that Batman and Robin is without flaw, but it pains me when people say the movie has nothing redeeming about it. Now, apart from those things, there are some elements of the the movies that simply cannot be defended. The back credit card. Good through forever? Give me a break. Mr. Freeze's endless ice puns. Look, Joel, less is more, okay? Less is more. Poison Ivy blowing the pheromone dust shit every two minutes. Look, you could make a drinking game out of that. The never-ending butt shots, just on and on and on. But at the same time, there are a lot of cool things, too. In Batman Forever, Batman rescues Dick from a gang of martial arts thugs. The gang gangbangers ran away without Batman even having to fight them, though, because Batman has a well-established reputation in Gotham City as an ass-kicker. Even though Batman was outnumbered at least 15 to 1, nobody wanted a piece of him, and I just think that's cool. In Batman and Robin, while uh, Batman pursues Mr. Freeze... The Batmobile gets frozen solid, so Batman has to eject, and then he glides down into Mr. Freeze's Ice-UV. See? Arnold isn't the only one who can make bad ice puns around here. And then after that, he takes Mr. Freeze down. Arkham Asylum. It looks freaking scary in both movies, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. I wouldn't change anything about how Joel Schumacher presented it. It's perfect. Just the way that it is. Also... Elliot Goldenthal's music throughout both films does what every movie score should do and perfectly capturing the atmosphere and tone that Schumacher was going for. I would guess that Danny Elfman's various themes and probably his style point-blank wouldn't have worked very well. Schumacher, in my opinion, definitely hired the right guy when he brought Goldenthal into the mix. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah play it. Come
0: on.
2: Play it loud! Play it loud! <laughs>
1: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks. Internet radio broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpile out freak! Two! on well, the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy.
2: True. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubble gum. Oh, shit. Oh.
1: It's a super prize package worth 9388
0: dollars Good money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the
1: face I
2: ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Bayton! And now, <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet,
0: your hosts.
2: Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! Thank god goddamn what he did kill him. Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish stupid, you have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smile. So you're looking at me? Yeah,
1: because she thought you are some kind of freak. Now come on, she likes me, eh? No hey? way. Shut up, you freak! Surely you. I say shut up! It's a man of... A man! Freaks.com Hey everyone, Sean Engle here.
2: And strange disembodied voice here.
1: Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to?
2: Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, calling around with Sonic bell prepping for the mine apocalypse.
1: You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now.
2: Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram opus US-1? Um,
1: no. I'm gonna start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern.
2: And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CB signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly.
1: Plus, I'm still gonna be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner.
2: Ooh, will he be getting a metal plate in his head to allow him to receive CB signals?
1: No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs.
2: Seriously? Yep. So, all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy?
1: Precisely.
2: <sighs> Whatever. So, where can I find out about all these changes?
1: Lots of places. For one, you can go to com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well.
2: So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US 1?
1: Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weider to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bro podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. Come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com
0: Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at Magnus.Libson.com. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S you can email me and my parole officer at at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind. And that's a promise. If you enjoyed the show, review it in iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the show, review it in iTunes. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California.